Blog Talk Radio. is brought to you by National ACO. National ACO, one of 44 participants admitted as a next-generation model accountable care organization by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, is experiencing strong growth, was nation-leading in its first performance year, and has logged five years of successful operations. National ACO is leading innovation in value-based health care, alternative payment models, and population health management. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, your producer and moderator, known to some on Twitter as at2healthguru and the publisher of acowatch.com. I'm joined in the virtual studio by National ACO co-founders, Dr. Andre Berger, Chief Executive Officer, and Dr. Alex Foxman, President and Chief Medical Officer, respectively. And now for today's special guest, Dr. Farzad Mastashari. Farzad Mastashari, MD, is CEO of Alidaid, a startup he co-founded aimed at helping primary care physicians form accountable care organizations. He previously served as both deputy and national coordinator of health IT at the office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, where he coordinated U.S. efforts to build a health information technology infrastructure for health care reform and consumer empowerment a fellow at Brookings Institution, and assistant commissioner for the Primary Care Information Project at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Alidade partners with 205 primary care physician practices, federally qualified health centers, and regional health cooperatives in value-based health care, organized into 16 accountable care organizations across 15 states. These primary care physicians are accountable for more than 190,000 Medicare beneficiaries. More than half of Allidade's primary care physicians are in practices with fewer than 10 clinicians. Allidade is committed to outcome-based approaches to determine the value of health care. The company is committed to using technology, data, practice transformation expertise, and most importantly, the relationship between a person and their primary care physician to improve the value of health care. So with that introduction, Doctors Berger and Foxman, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Mastashari, his work at Allidade, and current take on the state of the accountable care industry. Well, uh, that was um, a mouthful of an introduction uh, <laughs> because um, as far as that you have done so many great things, and we're very honored uh, to have you with us today um, as uh, somebody that um, I think can add a lot of great insight into uh, the current state of affairs and uh, the transition from volume to value, as well as kind of what you see the kind of the future um, in your um, crystal ball, and we'd mm-hmm. like to Pick your brain on some of these things, but um, having said that, um, 
I think one of the things I, I want to start with is uh, the idea of like what's different today. We we now have a kind of a transformation going on in the marketplace. This idea of volume to value. It started off maybe yeah. in the 90s and it's kind of evolved a little bit here and there. And we've had all these different bifurcations and acronyms associated with these bifurcations, IPAs, PHOs, MSOs, EIEIOs, all kinds of these organizations that have developed. So the question, uh, you know, for for me to ask you, um, what is what is your vision? What's Adelaide? Is it a, a new one, an old um, PPMC bottle, or... Uh, or have uh, you? We finally se- settled in on a model, your vision, that can actually deliver on the triple aim. Um, you know, the better care, better outcomes, and lower per capita costs. Uh, help us understand yeah. what your thoughts are. Yeah. Well, um, I, I I I was in med school in the '90s, so I can't speak. <laughs> I can't speak exactly to what. Um, the similarities, differences, but here are some things that I think, um, from what I've read, might be a little bit different this time around. Um, you know, there's there's basically three pillars to what we do um, and and what others are doing in in this new movement, right? There's uh, the contracting side, so we help practices obtain value-based contracts from public and private payers, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, um, Medicare Shared Savings Program, and so forth. There's a second part, which is technology and data, and then there's a third part, which is practice transformation. So uh, on each of those, I think that things are a little different than what, and and we've learned something, and things are a little bit, um, I think, more hopeful than that we're not going to see the pendulum swing back again towards fee-for-service. On on the contracting side, I do think um, that we're seeing some learnings and some smarter uh, contracting where quality really matters and and uh, we're seeing both uh, it spread beyond just uh, Medicare to commercial payers. Um, and the idea that the backlash that came last time where deserved or not, the patients felt like they were uh, they were not getting more, <laughs> uh, that I think has changed now. And uh, the second related to that is we have much more uh, tools now to actually be able to analyze networks and do predictive modeling and figure out who's the high-risk um, uh, patients and who's at highest risk of being readmitted and have real-time event notifications, to have electronic health records with decision support. None of that was in place even 10 years ago. So, and, you know, to, for that, I, I, I do think we we do need to appreciate uh, uh, the infrastructure that's been built on, on health IT the past, uh, the past 10 years, and I'm proud to have been uh, a part of that. But now it's time to put it to purpose. Um, and that come, brings us to the third piece of this, which is uh, the the eternal challenge of how do we actually change workflows? How do we actually transform the experience of a patient and providers in taking care uh, of of that in that in that encounter and rewiring the practice, as it were, uh, to perform differently? So I, I do think that we we have better contract forms that that provide fewer conflicts between what's best for the patient, what's best for the provider, and what's best for society. That alignment is the key 
right, that runs through everything we're trying to do. Let's make sure that whatever the policies are established are good for patients. It's what you would want for your mom. They're good for the doctors. It's sustainable for them, and it's good for society, sustainable for society. So that's part one. Part two is absolutely the technology. Even five years ago, I don't think we could have done this um, the same way that we're able to scale through cloud-based tools and uh, the analytics that we're doing and the data sharing that we're seeing. So that's the, the second part. But the third part is in some ways the most important that's never going to change, which is the will to and the and the engagement of clinicians in, in this. And I like to say, you know, if, if we just had engaged clinicians on, on what we're trying to do, we wouldn't need anything else. We'd, we'd be all set. So I, I agree with that third part, and, and that actually uh, brings me to, to one of my fascinating things about you as well, is how you got to where you are right now. I've read up on, on some of your history. You've, you've been a part of uh, the New York uh, 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 as assistant commissioner to, yes. to help. You've got, done a lot of great things. What makes your story and, and some of the other ones, such as mine and Dr. Berger, so unique, and, and, and why did we become yeah. kind of the, the – the ones that are riding the beginning wave, and how could we uh, basically emulate what we feel and how, how we see the future of healthcare into the physicians that, that we're trying to transform from volume to value-based care? Yeah, and, you know, everyone has their story that as you're living it doesn't necessarily, you don't figure, you can't figure out how, you know, things seem to happen by chance in our lives. And we look back and it seems like everything was perfectly designed to keep, to, to end us up where we are right this moment doing exactly what we're doing. And I, I certainly feel that way, whether it was, you know, training in public health and population health uh, back in the 90s before med school, actually, uh, whether it was kind of my early exposure to uh, com computers in and statistical methods uh, and epidemiology and, and then in, in electronic health records um, and, and then my experience with policy at the federal level as a regulator, uh, as, as someone uh, pushing out uh, programs to, to help stand you know, shoulder to shoulder with small practices, helping them implement new technologies and new workflows, um, the health information exchanges, the beacon communities, all those and then my experience at Brookings seemed to perfectly kind of uh, put me in a position where I had no choice. <laughs> I felt like that then to then to then to begin this work and uh, to uh, really engage in in this different kind of service. I, I've I've had you know public service, civil service. I've been in academic settings and so forth. But uh, this seems very much very familiar to me in a way. Uh, uh, this service to a cause and service to um, a group of, of primary care, private practice, independent physicians who all too often are are uh, ignored or, or or you know marginalized in today's healthcare system, and they're they're they should be the they should be they're they're kings and and they're treated like pawns, and and we're going to change that. Uh, well said, absolutely. Arzad, uh, thanks for that. Um, so in your in your quest on your mission here um could you could you help us understand uh the Adelaide business model yeah you know how 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 you got to 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 come to choose that model and uh you've been at this for you know a few years how has it evolved since you launched it and and how have your results to date and how do you see um it evolving uh in the next few years as you try to continue to uh, 
um, you know, create transformation. Yeah. So our we wanted to really keep our business model simple and aligned. So um, what we what we said was, look, um, primary care providers don't have a, a lot of capital uh, to be able to. Uh, do all the things that it's going to take. You know, people estimate it takes $2 million plus uh, to start an ACO and to run it every year. So, um, and, and oftentimes these ACOs are operating not at scale. So it's not efficient to have every ACO hiring their own analytics people and their own technology people, their own IT people, their own policy people, their own, uh, you know, uh, clinical uh, folks. So the, the idea here really was to... Um, provide uh, at scale services to a larger and larger number of uh, physician groups, networks across the country, and make the the price of entry uh, low so that uh, we we charge a one dollar PM per per member per month for their uh, attributed patients in in the ACO. Um, so you know, a practice typically will will pay um, less few less than a thousand dollars a month. Um, which, you know, isn't nothing, right, for a primary care practice, isn't nothing. And, and that commitment actually is important. Uh, but then we say, look, we're going to get paid when you get paid, if you get paid. Uh, we think it's when you get paid, which uh, is when we get um, savings distributions. And whatever comes back to the ACO, right off the top, 60% goes to the doc pool and gets distributed among the physicians, and 40% comes to Allidate. To, for our investments, for our growth, for our infrastructure, and so forth. So that's the business model, pure and simple. And, uh, you know, it, it takes away a lot of the uncertainty and, and, and a lot of the, the upfront uh, cost from the practices, which is why I think uh, we're, we're growing briskly. Uh, the statistics you mentioned, we already uh, this year added another 60 practices, 352 providers, and 55,000 Medicare lives. Um, so we're now close to having $3 billion uh, under management in three years. So uh, the model the model is growing, and what's gratifying is that it's not just the number of lives or practices, um, but we are getting better at it. Um, we are deploying faster. We're launching faster. We have more tools uh, in the toolkit year after year after year, and we're seeing great consistency among all of our ACOs in terms of our ability to have reproducible impact on reducing readmissions, um, on uh, hospital discharges, on some of the big you know, ticket items, skilled nursing facility discharges, ER visits, all of the, the, the utilization data that CMS reports. In literally every single ACO, we're seeing declines in uh, inappropriate and harmful utilization. And we're seeing on the cost side, we're seeing, uh, you know, it takes a while for utilization to translate into costs, and those cost uh, advantages compound over time. Uh, look, I, I don't want to um, – I, I do think that our, our, the policies aren't perfect. we got to acknowledge that. The benchmarks are not the right counterfactual of what, you know, what the cost would have been because they don't account region for regional uh, trends and recent uh, regional benchmarks. So, you know – our ACOs that had a little bit of a tailwind are going to be more likely to get savings in the first years. Our ACOs that have a little bit of a headwind in that artificial benchmark are going to take a little bit longer. But everyone's moving in the right direction, and we're in this for the long haul, and we're super confident in, in the business model. So, so because Alidaid um, gets paid when a physician or, a phys or an ACO gets paid, how do you deal with those 
groups, organizations, or maybe even individual physicians within an organization that just don't get it at this point, that may not get it, that are not aligned, that are not forward-thinking. How, how does your organization deal with that? Because I think it's something that uh, is, is uh, sometimes systemic uh, in, in every organization. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, because our incentives are around outcomes, we don't accept every practice. You know, if you're if you're in a um, IPA model where you're you you want to go negotiate rates with a payer, then you want to have as many practices as you can, no matter their quality, right? You just want more market power. Uh, that's not what we do. We say we actually want the right practices, and um, we spend a fair bit of time. Uh, qualifying the practices, both through data um, as well as through, you know, visiting them and talking to people who've worked with them before. Uh, and, you know, I was just in, in the launch of our uh, of our ACO in New Jersey, and you could tell that the practices were impressed with who else was around that table, right? That idea that we're all in this boat together. I'm going to boat with some pretty strong players here. i got to up my game, right? So uh, that, I think, is a, is a really a big difference between fever service models where it's just market power versus outcome-based models where it matters who's in your boat, right? Um, but uh, look, every year there there are, um, you know, it's, it's, it's less than 10% uh, of, of the practices, but there are some practices where the rest, and this is all up to the board, right? This is a physician-governed board who we show every month the data for everybody. And we're like, okay, we said we would do wellness visits. How are we doing? We said we would do transitional care visits. How are we doing? We said we would do care management on the highest cost patients. How are we doing? We show the practices how they're doing. And if someone's always at the bottom, then the question is pretty obvious. Why are you here, right? And so we do see some practices leaving. That's okay. Um, but by far what we see is, is very, very low rates. Of, um, of of churn because the practices really can see the progress they're making. So um, right now, uh, aside from the transformation from volume to value, there's another transformation. And that transformation is the transformation into risk, into kind of pushing providers into really the requirement to take on some risk, mm -hmm. either directly or indirectly through their ACOs. Mm -hmm. So what what is your, what's your plan for that? Yeah. How are you going to um, move the organizations that you work with into pretty well-mandated risk environment um, over the next several years? What, yeah. What's your thought we're, on that? We're looking forward to it. <laughs> Um, and I'd love to hear your your experience with the next gen uh, program uh, as well. Um, look, I think that the more um, capable the practices get, and the more confident we feel in our ability to manage the cost, the more it makes sense to have more gains. And why are we only getting fifty percent of the the gains that we that we create? Well, uh, in in our two ACOs that that are now in their second contract period, we're going into track three, where we could uh, get up to 75% uh, of the gains. So, uh, so I think I think that's a trade-off that is well worth doing when you're ready, when the practices are ready. Now, it also um, 
uh, has to be right-sized. I actually think that we advocated very hard for track one plus and the formulation of the risk, uh, downside risk, being based on uh, practice revenue. And we now have some of our commercial contracts following that where the upside is on total cost of care. The downside is on the aggregate practice revenue received. That, to me, is a smarter way of titrating risk so it's not bankrupting for the practices. Uh, even so, I, I think um, we have the capital to be able to shield um, uh, our, our practices from from nearly all of the downside, but not all of it. And, and I do think that there is some degree of downside risk that is motivating. Too much is paralyzing. Just the right amount can be motivating uh, for everybody in, in the system, but not so much that um, – uh, that that you know providers feel um, uh, that that they can't handle uh, the risk, or or policymakers or the public might be afraid that people that physicians might do things that are not in the patient's best interest if they're on on the downside hook for it. So I think those are important considerations. But we're not afraid of uh, going into a risk environment. In fact, we uh, are are now working on a, a fully capitated Medicare Advantage deal where we get a. Uh, percent of MLR, uh, but it's got to be in the in the right place with the right group of docs. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty evident through through the uh, the government's uh, just movement through through uh, um, healthcare and and where we're going with risk that it's that and and especially looking at macro with MIPS and an alternative payment model that that uh, at least uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services wants us to be. Uh, in full rate, in some sort of very high risk-based uh, models, because they believe that this is really where the savings is. This was fully aligned. And recently, uh, the Next Generation ACO uh, Program Year 2016 cohort uh, data just came out. Uh, there are 18 in the cohort, uh, 11 winners uh, making shared savings, seven losers. The winners making approximately $58 million in shared savings. The losers, approximately $20 million. So this shows about a 64%. Um, uh, uh, shared savings rate compared to, you know, a uh, what is it now? Maybe 35% or so in any year for uh, for the MSSP. So the question for you, Farzad, is because this model, at least in the first cohort, seems to to have a advantageous um, shared savings rate, has a lot of these benefit enhancements that seem to be uh, quite impressive and other means of of revenue. Why why aren't more people gravitating to, towards this type of model as opposed to staying in a track two or three or even staying in 1.5? Yeah, we actually wrote a, a whole um, uh, article about why we chose not to do next gen. <laughs> and and you're right. It, it, there are a lot of things about the next gen ACO model that were very um, very creative and 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 forward thinking and and, and very useful. Uh, but for us, it came down to the benchmark, and the the, the benchmarks are really right. They're based on um, many years ago what the costs were at at that point in time. And uh, it, if if you're an ACO that has you know improved costs, um, uh, if uh, if that was not a particularly good benchmark year for you, uh, then then that makes it um, uh, that static uh, benchmark year makes it not a great choice for us compared to track three. Uh, but I, that's something I expect that if the program is is given time to iterate, uh, you know, will uh, will be updated and and we look forward to that as as really as a lead in to um, uh, uh, taking on the, the the more significant sorts of Medicare Advantage like uh, arrangements over time. 
Uh, Farzad, you know, um, I'm listening to you, um, in, in terms of the decision point and, and why, uh, there's a decision perhaps not to do this. If, if you're, for example, um, if you got $3.2 billion in spend, um, Medicare spend over all of these physician groups, and uh, you'd have to put up a 2% performance bond on $3.2 billion. Um, that, that's not an insignificant <laughs> amount of capital well, right that's, there. Well, that's, that's partly, uh, that's partly <laughs> why we've raised $80 million from, right. uh, from venture capital. Right. So I'm just saying, um, you know, do you think that that, um, particular, I mean, if you look at, if you really look carefully at the cohort that we know, um, you know, um, I think all but three are either IDSs or PHOs. Um, the other, of the other three that are physician, uh, kind of driven or whatever, one is kind of management company controlled and the other is very, you know, local to one state. Mm -hmm. Then there's national ACO, which happens mm -hmm. to be a bit unique because we're physician-owned, governed, and we're multi-state. Hooray! But, but, yay! Hooray! <laughs> but, but, but um, you know, it, 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 to me, that's the challenge for, for, for us. Uh, when I say us, I mean we're both physician, you know, we're both in the hooray. We're both physician-driven, physician-governed, physician-owned. We want to stay that way. Uh, we we kind of have a very similar mission in terms of you know what we want to do uh, uh, to promote the right change for the mm -hmm. right reasons. But the question I'm asking you is, you know, that's a daunting amount of financial yes. underwriting that has to happen, and for for physicians to do that, um, whether they're organized or not organized, is you know, Herculean and, and probably a risk that cannot be swallowed. So um, where do you see that as far as evolving down the line? Yeah, I, I, I think that two two things. One, there there have to be lower risk pathways, and that's why I liked the Track 1 Plus, which is an advanced alternative payment model. You practice do earn the 5% uh, bonus under under MACRA. Uh, but the downside is uh, as a, a portion of practice revenue, like 8% of practice revenue from Medicare. So that's good. And the uh, the cash uh, reserve requirements are subsequently much lower, much, much, much lower um, than it would be under, under Track 3. So that's one answer. The other is I do think that uh, there's a role for – uh, organizations like ours and yours uh, to help enable uh, these physician groups to come together in networks and to take risk and to provide them with some of the financial backing uh, and other things like technology and regulatory that they will need to to succeed. So I think you can continue to be independent, but you can't be atomic anymore. So with a couple of minutes left, we only have three minutes left. This is where, Farzad, you take out your uh, your wizard hat and your crystal ball, and you oh, tell boy. us where you think where do you think we're going to be in the next three, five, ten years in 
in healthcare? How is this all going to come together? Are we going to be looking at the same type of models, or what, what do you think will be happening uh, uh, now and, and in the future? Well, one one thing uh, I, I do think the the data is going to continue to show that physician-led ACOs are going to do better than health system-based uh, ACOs. The data is pretty clear on that. I think that's going to con- that gap is going to continue to widen, um, and and I think the consequence of that from a policy point of view is more attention to consolidation, antitrust, um, uh, making sure that anti-competitive behavior. Isn't uh, isn't tolerated things like facility fees and site neutral payments and 340B that are driving uh, independent practice to to join health systems are going to be are going to be looked at. That's one. Uh, two, I do think that um, there is more, uh, as you pointed out, uh, and I think the same is true in uh, for track two and three that. Uh, ACOs that do take more risk are more successful, so I see that trend continuing and Medicare Advantage really being the final destination for for many. Well, Farzad, um, I want to thank you so much for uh, the great insight and really uh, some of your smart thoughts. Uh, we we uh, share your vision. Um, we uh, wish you the greatest success uh, with your business plan and, and your future, and we hope that you'll indulge us and come back again um, of course. so we can further this discussion. And again, and thank you so much. Yeah. We appreciate it. And continue it. to nurture community-based health care around the nation. That, that's of utmost importance. Thank Amen. You. Thank right. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. There you have it. That's an amen. That'll be the last word for today's broadcast. I do want to thank our guest, Dr. Farzad Mostashari, the co-founder and CEO at Allidade, for his time and insights today. Stay current with Allidade's work on Twitter via at Allidade, that's A-L-E-D-A-D-E-A-C-O, and on the web via www.allidade.com. Finally, do follow National ACO on the web via www.nacomso.com and on Twitter via the same NACOMSO. Our next broadcast, October 31st, we chat with former Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services Acting Administrator Andy Slavitt, who's been a relentless warrior advocating for a bipartisan solution to support the Affordable Care Act. Until we meet again on This Week in Accountable Care for Doctors Berger and Foxman, this is your moderator, Greg Masters, saying bye now. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. 
Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 